All right, as most of you know, we've been walking through uh, time in our church and going through the spiritual disciplines. We've talked about uh, things about the Word of God and our discipline in the Word of God and things about prayer and our discipline in prayer. And today we're landing on fasting. So we're going to talk about that today. So let me pray for us and then we'll get going, okay? So please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for letting us be here right now. Gather together for the sake of your name and for your glory. And God, we love your word. And we want to be changed by your word. So God, I pray that you would, you would challenge us, God. Encourage us. Build us up, God. Move us in a path that makes us more like you. Move us into a path, God, that causes us to behold your glory. Move us in a path, God, that invites and welcomes your presence among us. God, we need your help. Lord, I pray that you would help me to share, to preach, to teach your word in a way that brings you glory. God, and I pray that you help every person to hear in a way that brings you glory. God, I pray that you would cast far away from us, Lord, this, this sinful tendency to hear your word and be it just to only a hearer and not be a doer. God, I pray that you would cast that far away from this room. It causes us to be people that hear your word with fear and trembling. Make us a people, God, that hear your word to walk with you and to know you and to obey you. God, we need your help even right now. And I praise you, God. I praise you, God, that you so freely help us. You have helped us so many times, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. God, help us again. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're walking through some things about fasting. It says there, fasting uh, at the top of your study guide, enduring bodily hunger for the sake of a higher hunger. So obviously, you fast, you have bodily hunger. But I'm saying in that little phrase, and that little title, that it's for the sake of a higher hunger and that we hunger for God. We hunger for His presence and therefore we fast. So let me just kind of, let, let me show my hand here from the beginning. Let me just kind of show my cards from the beginning about where we are going, okay? I believe fasting is all about desiring the presence of Christ. In other words, we fast because the bridegroom is gone, but we want Him. We want the bridegroom, and therefore, Christians fast. Fasting is all about a desperation in our souls for the presence of God. And so I'm just kind of showing my hand to you there, okay? This is what we're going after. Now, I aim to show that out of Matthew chapter 9, but we're not going to come to that until a little later. And the reason is I want to lay some foundation. There's some foundations that if you don't get and you're not obsessed with these truths from God's Word of foundations, then what I just said about fasting will mean nothing to you. And here's the foundations that we're going to go after. We're going to go after talking about looking in God's Word about the person of God and about the presence of God. Of God. Here's what I mean about the person of God. The person of God. I mean God is not a doctrinal statement. God is not just a, a, a historical figure. He's not a far off deity somewhere. Okay, He's not just that. But God the living God. God the person. Is who I want to put before you. That we might not just be obsessed with the stuff of God. Or be interested in the things about God. But in God Himself. The person of God. Just let that hit your mind for a second. Do you know Him? Do you know this God? I say that to non-Christian and Christian alike. Do you know Him? Do you know this God? The person of God. We're called into 
a relationship with Him that's not like a scholar. It's not, it's not like a, a scholar who, uh, who adores some historical figure, but more like a child coming before his father. Do you know Him? Do you know God? I'm talking about the person of God. I need you to understand that from God's Word. And then also, the presence of God. And I speak about the presence of God for the most part today. I'm not going to be speaking about His omnipresence. Now, now that's a glorious reality. That our God is omnipresent. He is always everywhere in His fullness. There is no place where He is not. Psalm 139 says, I ascend into heaven and you are there. I make my bed in hell and you are there. God is in all places. There's nowhere that you can hide from His presence. Jeremiah said, He fills heaven and earth. So this is a glorious reality, the omnipresence of God. And yet, for the most part, what I'm going to be talking about today is that what many people have called the special presence of God or the manifest presence of God. So we'll get there in just a moment. So do you long to experience God's presence in your life? This is a foundation that you must have, you must understand it, and you must desire it before fasting even means anything to you. Do you long for experience of God's presence in your life? Do you long for real, intimate communion with Him? Do you know you can have that if you're in Christ? Real, intimate communion with God. So do you want that? Or you just you just settle for knowing facts about Him? You know God. Now, we've got to lay this foundation, and I plan on going after trying to do that. Um, because if you don't grab a hold of this foundation... Fasting will be without purpose. It'll be out of place for you. Okay? The person in the presence of God. Now, before we go down that track, let me just say a few things to stir up your hearts to uh, hear God's Word, okay? Here's a few things I want to say before we lay out this foundation and then move into talking about God's Word on fasting, okay? Now, I taught this about uh, this exclusively. Now, we've kind of, as we've come through the Word, there's been times where we've talked about fasting because it's just, it's just come to us in God's Word as, as we've come through the Scriptures. But I taught on it exclusively, just fasting, just about three years ago. I went and looked it up. June 9, 2013, I taught fasting exclusively to this church. Now, I want to ask you a question, okay? If you were here for that, if you were here for that three years ago, I want you to ask you this question. I wanted this to be a challenge to you and even encouragement to you. Have you grown in that discipline since that time? We looked, this, we looked at this just about three years ago on June 9, 2000, what did I say? 13. Have you grown in this discipline of fasting since that time? Or have you let another three years go by without walking into growth in this lifestyle of fasting? I want that to be a challenge to you. Some of you are here for that. Many of you. Many of you were here for that. Have you grown in that since that time? Or if you were not here three years ago, just in your life, if you were not here for that teaching three years ago, have you grown in this discipline of fasting? I want to put that before you. You remember the principle that Jesus laid out? He said, to whom much is given, from him much will be required. To whom much is given, from him much will be required. Well, how long ago did you hear those glorious words of Jesus when he said things like, you, when, you're, when you fast? Or when he said, when the bridegroom leaves, then they will fast. When did you hear those words and how have you responded in your heart? How have you responded in your actions to what Jesus says in his word about fasting? Ask yourself that question. Self-examination time. Have you grown in this area of fasting? 
Now, I'm not here to motivate anybody from a, from a standpoint of guilt or shame or anything like that. I'm not here to motivate. That wouldn't do us any good anyways. Okay? So I'm not here to motivate you in that sort of way. My aim is that we might be a people that absolutely long for the presence of God in our lives individually and as a church. And it expresses itself through people who fast because they long for Him to come. The bridegroom is gone, but they want Him here. Alone that we would be a people. And that is my aim. Not driven by guilt, but I want you to be driven by desire and love for Christ. Okay, so this is what we're going after. Now, I think it's important, again, before we get into these foundations and move into it, I think it's very important that you think deeply about this topic of fasting. I really mean that. I want you to think deeply in self-examination about this topic of fasting. And here's a few reasons why. You live in a culture that knows nothing of releasing earthly desires, even good earthly desires, to lay hold of a greater desire. Your culture knows nothing about that. And you can't tell me you live in it and you don't have a tendency to be affected by it. So listen to me. Your culture, my culture, our culture knows nothing of dying to itself. Our culture only knows whatever I want, I get it. Whatever I want, whatever I desire, I fulfill that desire. Knows nothing of relinquishing certain desires for a greater desire. They know nothing of a desire for the presence of God. And so you live in that culture. But not only in the culture as a whole, but even in the Christian culture that we live in. Neglects this practice of fasting. That's the culture you live in. So I'm encouraging you to think deeply about these things. May it be that you have been affected, that we have been affected by even a Christian culture that seems to have neglected this exercise of fasting. Um, You know, I don't have, when I say that, like when I think about our church, you know, in fact, let me say that. It, let's not hide behind our Christian culture. What about our church? What about us? Do we have a lifestyle of fasting? Are we weak in this area? And I don't tally up. I have no idea, you know, who fasts, who prays. So I'm not trying to come at you like that. But what I am saying is I have reason to believe that we have a great weakness in these things. And if fasting says with the hunger of our bodies, we want more of Christ, then what does it say when a group of people are weak in fasting and prayer? And so I think this should be a disturbing reality to us that we want to come up against. And we want, we want to take God's word right now. And we want, to, we want to take any convictions that are there. And we want to say, let's go. Let's be encouraged. And let's press into this thing that God has laid out for us in his word. Now you live, again, you live even in a Christian culture and even among us to where literally what's in the Bible, we don't even hardly understand that it can be lived out in real life. I mean, and seriously, like I'm not saying this to be funny. I've literally talked to people about fasting at times, and the, and they had a sincere concern that they would die if they went without food for three days, like like medically die. I don't mean like I'm dying here. I mean like dead. I'm not saying that even to be funny. I'm just saying that's 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 the the realm that you live in. No framework for it. Listen, as I read this, and uh, I think this should rock anybody back on the heels a little bit. I read this in John Piper's book on. Um, on fasting called A Hunger for God, which I'd recommend highly to anybody. Um, But he says this in there. He's talking about the strength of the early South Korean church in the area of fasting. He's talking about their strength. And he says this in there. He says, for example, in the Overseas Missionary Society churches alone, more than 20,000 people have completed a 40-day fast, usually at one of their prayer houses in the mountains. 
And I'm telling you, I know I've been in a time in my life, and I bet many of you have too, where you thought, I thought that only happened in the Bible. 40 days of fasting? Today? And so I'm just telling you, that's the culture you live in. So I want to encourage you as we talk about this stuff to think deeply about what God's Word says about fasting. What does God's Word say about these things, okay? Um, Let me just, as we move on, we're about to move into these foundations. Let me just remind you again. I I genuinely say I'm not coming at this. to. I do not want to motivate you by guilt. And I don't want you to be motivated that way. You know why? Because it doesn't work. I want you to be motivated by love for Jesus and desires for His presence. Because the, the reality is, if you're here and you're in Christ, you have some kind of desires for His presence. Even if it doesn't say, I want you, Jesus. Maybe it says, Jesus, I want to want you. Why am I so cold right now? I want to long for your presence. There's something in you like that if you're here and you're saved. So praise the living God for that. And I want us to be a people that express that as God's Word says in fasting, okay? So let's, let's kind of start laying some of these foundations that are on your study guide here, okay? Um, so the first foundation is this. I want to talk about the great importance of the presence of God. And what I want to do is just... this is The presence of God is of massive importance, okay? And I want to do this just by looking at the big picture of God's Word, Genesis to Revelation, thinking about the presence of God as a whole. So this is what we're going to do, okay? So how important... Is the presence of God. How important is God's presence. According to our Bibles. Now the most obviously true thing. I could probably say today was. Very important. The Bible's all about God. It's all about Him. His person. Not just His stuff. But Him. His presence. It's the most obvious thing I can say. But let me, let me get more specific. Okay. Think about this. The Bible begins and the Bible ends. Like bookends. Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem. You got the very beginning before sin enters the world. You got the very end after sin is completely destroyed. You got man dwelling with God. And on both ends, they mirror each other. They mirror each other in different ways, like that river that runs through these cities or this place, or like like the tree of life. If you read them together, you realize that they purposefully mirror one another. And the most important mirror that's there is in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. God dwelled with man. Man dwelt in God's presence fully. No sin blocking the way. They knew Him. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see man again dwelling in the presence of Almighty God. Dwelling in the presence of the Savior. They see Christ Jesus face to face. They know Him. You see that on both ends of these bookends. Now one question you have to ask, because you know like I know, that after the Garden of Eden, mankind has rebelled. We have rebelled against God, have been banished from His presence. So how do we get from Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden, where God dwells with man, back to Revelation 21 and 22, where God dwells with man for all of eternity and sin is no more? How do we get from one side to the other? And what's beautiful is that the Bible unfolds that story. So the whole Bible unfolds that story about how man can dwell in the presence of God after having been banished from his presence. This whole Bible, this whole book is about the presence of God, okay? So as I said, Genesis 1 and 2, Garden of Eden, dwelling in the presence of God. Just think about that. Imagine that. No hindrance like we know. Just God dwelling with man. You know Him. The fountain of all joy. The fountain of all pleasure, you know Him, you know Him intimately, imagine that. 
And then Adam and Eve rebel against God. And according to Genesis chapter 3, they are cast out. Cast out from His presence. Listen to Isaiah 59 too. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face or His presence. It's translated presence at times. Your sin has hidden His face or His presence from you. It's been hidden from you. So let's think about what that means. What does it mean to be banished from the presence of God? What does it mean that because of our sin, we have been separated from God? What does that mean? Okay, here's what it can't mean. It can't mean we've been separated from His omnipresence, right? God is omnipresent. God, He is everywhere at all times. Again, Psalm 139, ascend into heaven, you are there. Make my bed in hell, you are there. Our God is omnipresent God. Nothing can hide from His presence. So obviously we're not separated in that sense, right? So in what sense are we separated from the presence of God? Or in what sense are we banished from the presence of God? And what we're banished from, what we are separated from because of sin, what Adam and Eve Eve were separated from was this special presence of God. Where God was going to, He dwelt with them, not just in a way that's omnipresent as with all, as He is in every place in all the universe, but in a special way with them as His presence dwelt with man. As a child to His Father. As a bride to her bridegroom. An intimacy, a communion with God. And that is separated in these moments, okay? Because of man's sin. Now, why is man separated from God? Well, obviously because of sin, right? But what I mean is why? Why does sin separate us from God? I'll give you two reasons. One is God's holiness and one is God's mercy. I say God's holiness because our God is holy, perfect, righteous, pure. He will not, he will not dwell in the presence of sin. And sin must be moved away from Him. You understand that? He doesn't dwell. He doesn't allow His special presence of a child to a father to dwell with sin. And people like me and you are sinners in His sight. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God. So they were cast out of His presence. So because of God's holiness, we're separated from God. But let me give you another thing. God's mercy. He said, how how are we mercifully separated from God? Well, here's what I mean. Adam and Eve, in the moment they sinned against God, God could have rightly and justly poured out His wrath then and there, and yet He removes them to a safe place until He has time. Until over time, He's got this plan He's had before time began that He's going to actually redeem them and restore them back into His presence through Christ Jesus who would come. And so this is actually, in a sense, a mercy from God. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, the question remains. Adam and Eve banished from the presence of God. All sinners like me and you. Banished, separated from the presence of God. So how can we be restored to Revelation 21 and 22? And again, the story of the Bible. As you just read through the Scriptures, it tells us about this, this story. The story of the Bible helps us to, to see it. And what's going to happen is God is going to set up places on the sinful earth. He's going to set up places where His presence will dwell. And He's going to teach men through those places. He's going to pull people out for Himself in a place. And He's going to teach men how to enter back into His presence through a sacrificial lamb. He's going to teach them that. And yet those are just pictures. Because the real deal comes down the road. And eventually we get to be in His presence. Okay, so let me explain that. So, We've got God has created the Garden of Eden. Man dwells with God. This is amazing. Man has rebelled against God. Okay? Now, Genesis 
And the first half of Exodus, what God is now going to do is out of sinful man has, has populated the earth. And now what God's going to do is he's going to pull people out for himself. As I said, that's Genesis in the first half of Exodus. And then he's going to command those people in the second half of Exodus to build a tabernacle, a tabernacle, a place where God would dwell with man. This is what God is about to do. <clears throat> and this is obviously a picture. God's not limited to some tabernacle or tent in the wilderness. So this is obviously a picture to teach us something, okay? And, and I want you to think about this. The details in the tabernacle, if you go read the meticulous details in the last half of Exodus, those details bring your mind back to what you saw in the Garden of Eden. Because He's reminding you that this is a representation, this tabernacle, of that place where God dwelt with man. And you see pictures in the tabernacles. You see the meticulous details of the new Jerusalem that's coming. Because this place is a picture of how God will one day dwell again with His children. So this is what you see in this tabernacle. It's a picture. It's meant to point you to something. And at the end of Exodus, okay, so he's pulled out a people for himself, Genesis and Exodus. And in the end of Exodus, he's told, he's told them to build this tabernacle. And at the very end of Exodus, God, God is going to flash his power on this place. He's going to show the glory of his special manifest, manifest presence so that we can see that this is what God is trying to show us. Go with me to Exodus chapter 40. I want you to read it with me. <clears throat> God is going to flash his power in this place. Exodus 40. Chapter 40, verse 34 through 38. Let be, be, be overwhelmed and amazed at God flashing His special presence right here. Verse 34. They just got done building this tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I know you might not always know, what do I, what's supposed to be coming to my mind when I read stuff like this? You've probably read it before. What am I supposed to be seeing? And I, I just want you to see the glory of it. If you don't understand all the details of what it looked like that day, I want you to see the glory of it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night in the, in, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That's glorious, right? A place God flashes His presence. This is the place where God will dwell with man. But what about sin? How can sinful man come into the presence of God? Even if it's just, even if it's just a flash right here. Even if it's not the, the full-fledged thing that's coming in the future. How can sinful man enter into the presence of Almighty God in that tabernacle? How can that happen? And that's why the next book in the Bible is Leviticus. And Leviticus begins to teach us this truth. That it's a, it's a substitute. It's a sacrifice. It's atonement has to be made. That you just see it. Try to see that priest laying his hands on that animal. And confessing all the sins of the people. And then raining down fury on that animal in the place of the sinner. You see the substitute? And so God is teaching us about the one who's going to come. Who's called the lamb who has been slain. Okay, he's teaching us that this is the way that you enter into the presence of God. That one must come and die on your behalf for you to be restored back into the presence of God. It's your only hope. It's the only way you can safely, safely 
enter into the presence of God. This is obviously an illustration because the blood of bulls and goats have never taken away sin. Ever, according to Hebrews. Never taken away sin. Okay, so going through the Bible, you see that picture? Now, a little, a little over 400 years later, this illustration of how sinful man can enter into the presence of God through the tabernacle is actually going to transition. And now it's not going to be the tabernacle, it's going to be the temple. A more permanent structure of the temple. Solomon is going to build it during the time of his reign. Turn with me to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. So remember the children of Israel came out of Egypt. This is where they built that tabernacle, the place where God would dwell with man through a sacrifice, through a substitute. And then about 400 years later, a little over 400 years later, you got Solomon is about to build the house of the Lord. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. He began to build this thing called the house of God or the temple. And this is the place in Jerusalem where God is going to dwell with a man in that temple. That's obviously a picture because even Solomon says when he prays after this, he says, can God, can, will God dwell upon the earth? He says, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. How much less this temple which I built. He knew that this was a picture. He knew that this was an illustration. If you look at the, the meticulous details of the building of the temple, it draws your mind back to the Garden of Eden. It draws your mind forward to the New Jerusalem as the details that are there. Because it's supposed to be reminding us that we're being taught how we can be restored back into the presence of God. Now I want you to see this. Chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. We're going to see God in this temple. So, so when God... Got them to build the tabernacle. He flashed his presence. And now when God builds the temple, when he gets these people to build the temple, God again is going to flash his presence. Look at verse 10. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. It's been built and the cloud again fills the house of God. So that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon speaks because he's amazed. The glory of God, the presence of God has filled this place. I want you to see another one. Second Chronicles. You get a little more detail right here. I wasn't going to read this, but I don't think you're seeing the glory of this. So I'm going to give you the one with more details now. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Again, this thing has been built. At the beginning of chapter 5, he says this temple has been built. Because all the chronicles do, right, is just kind of repeat what we've already learned in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. It's just repeating in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We're getting a repeat uh, uh, record here. And so what we see here, a little more detail, verse 13. And indeed it came to pass, chapter 5, verse 13. When the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard and praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. Can you imagine being there? That the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Wow. 
And then Solomon speaks and he prays and he, and he consecrates his place. And then in chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, we see fire come down from heaven and consume the sacrifices as God shows his presence and flashes his special presence in this place, the temple. But I got a question. What about sin? How can man, sinful man, enter into the presence of God in this temple with their sin on them? How can they safely enter into the presence of God? They're sinners. They come into the presence of God. It's not safe. They'll go to hell forever. All of us. How can we do that? And what you see here at the end, as you continue to read through 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, as you see that the sacrificial system is still in place. We're still seeing lambs being put up and the sin being symbolically transferred onto the lamb. And then the hammer coming down, shed the blood, slaughter the lamb in the place of the sinner. And we're being taught a lesson all the way through this history, all throughout the story of the Bible. Now, this is this is all all this tabernacle temple. This went on for, for a long time. And it's all obviously a picture, a symbol, because eventually the enemies of Israel come in and they destroy that temple. Not to mention the whole time, if you go read the prophets in the Old Testament, they're prophesying about one who's going to come, who is going to be the true temple, the true dwelling place of God upon the earth. Isaiah even calls him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God is going to dwell with man. And so this is obviously a picture. It's obviously symbolic as we come through. Now, after that temple gets destroyed, the rest of the history of the Old Testament is Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. And in Ezra, you see them make a little attempt, kind of honestly, kind of a puny attempt to rebuild that temple. They make an attempt to do it. They try to rebuild that temple. And then you got about 400 years. So about 400 years goes by after Ezra tries to rebuild and reconstruct that temple. And that's when Jesus Christ himself comes to this earth as the temple of God. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. He takes you back to the beginning with God Himself and He calls Him the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And that just shows you the amazing nature of our God that we can't... Well, which is it? Is He was God or is He is God? And this is the amazing nature of our God that our God is called the Word right here. He was with God and He is God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning... With God. He's talking about the Word. The Word who is God. He's called the Word. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And that is talking about Christ Jesus who is called the Word. And that just said the Word became flesh and the Word is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He is the tabernacle. He is the temple upon the earth. The place where God will dwell with man. You read John chapter 2 verse 19. Jesus tells them the same thing. He tells them in 2.19. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Speaking about the temple of His body. So He comes as the temple upon the earth. Christ Jesus. And here we see God has come to visit man. God has come to dwell with man in a very real way. As the God man who is fully God. Fully man comes on a rescue mission to save. Now God. 
flashes His special power through Jesus. Except this time it's not limited to one location in a temple or a tabernacle somewhere. Now God is going to flash His power everywhere Jesus goes. The deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised up. Megastorms just stop at the word of His mouth. All heaven and earth is bowing down to the Son of God who has come to the earth. Even to the point the people are so astonished that even doubting Thomas in the very end looks at him and says, My Lord and my God. God has come to dwell with man. The presence of God, the special presence of God has been revealed. But I got a question. What about sin? What about sin? How can sinful man dwell in the presence of holy God? And be safe. How can this happen? How can this happen? And this is where we learn that not only is Jesus the temple of God upon the earth. But he is also that sacrifice. The one that all those atoning sacrifices pointed to. To get into the tabernacle and into the temple. And Jesus is the sacrifice. He lays down his life. John 1.29. John the Baptist says. Behold. That's the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. He goes to the cross for us and our sins are laid upon that lamb. Just like sins laid on that lamb in the Old Testament. Yet here it's for real. Christ Jesus has our sins laid upon Him in the wrath of God, the punishment of God that's supposed to fall on us. It rains down on Him instead. He is the temple and He is the sacrifice. Now God and man can dwell safely together. Now eventually Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends on high as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords. And He begins to prepare a place for us. And it's called the New Jerusalem. And Jesus begins to to prepare this place called the New Jerusalem, which will one day descend upon the new heavens and the new earth. And we see that in Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22. Go with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. First two verses. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem. This is what Christ has been preparing. New Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here... We see all those who come to Christ, all those that are restored, they dwell with God now forever. Restored from the Garden of Eden, banished from His presence, now restored into His presence through the sacrifice who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Restored into His presence. Look look at verse 3 through 5 with me. This is what this place is. This this, this ought to do something to your affections. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle. You hear it? The test, the tabernacle, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things that passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, right, for these words are true. And faithful. And you can keep reading throughout Revelation 21 and 22. And we see God dwelling with man. One of them even says, we look at the Savior face to face. We get to see the Savior face to face. And we don't die because our sin has been done away with on Christ who went to the cross for us. 
And that's for all of those who are in Him, all of those who have turned to Him. So what I'm trying to get you to see, and come and say, what's this got to do with fasting? <laughs> Nothing, I changed my mind. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this has something to do with fasting. What's it have to do with fasting? Listen, I've said to you that fasting is about longing for the presence of God. The bridegroom is gone. Oh, when she was here. And so if you don't understand the presence of God and the importance of the presence of God and the glory of the presence of God that is lined out for us from Genesis to Revelation, then fasting will mean nothing to you. It'll mean nothing to you. You think about it, it. Literally, the heart of the gospel is that God would restore us into His presence through Jesus Christ. The greatest gift of the gospel is not streets of gold. And it's not even your eternal life. The greatest gift of the gospel is that you get God. You get to know Him. You get to dwell with Him. You get to be with Him for all of eternity. Greatest gift of the gospel. And if you long for the presence of God on this earth, then you understand fasting. Now, I want to prove those things to you about fasting in just a moment. But let's take one more little step. One more little step deeper into the things about the presence of God, okay? One more little step deeper. One little step deeper into the things about the presence of God, okay? And this is a place on your study guide where it says the church longing for and in pursuit of the presence of God. Okay, so not only do we see the importance of the presence of God as we've seen Genesis to Revelation, but I also want you to see that the church is to be a people that long for not stuff of God, not religious things, not just our preference because we like going to church on Sunday, but a people who long for Him, Himself, the God Almighty Himself. We long for Him. We long for His presence. And so we pursue His presence diligently. Okay, I want you to see that. Here's one thing you can think about. The church, right now, okay, those who are redeemed to God, we are in a very interesting place. A very, I don't mean Mississippi. I mean, the church as a whole on this earth. We are in an interesting place, an interesting period, you would say. Our whole existence is very paradoxical. Okay? And here's what I mean. I want you to think about it. When Jesus the temple was here, man dwelt with God. In the new Jerusalem, man will full-fledged dwell with God. Okay? That's going to happen. But what about right now? This paradoxical time what about right now right now we have access into the presence of god and yet not the full flesh that we want like we're going to have in the new jerusalem now we see dimly but then face to face first Corinthians 13 says it's kind of paradoxical let me say it another way right now we have jesus and yet we don't have jesus Seems paradoxical. Matthew 28, verse 20, right? I will be with you always, Jesus says. But then over there in Philippians 1, 23, Paul says, man, I long to depart and go be with Christ. What if they'd have wrote him back? Paul, you have him always. You see the paradox here? We have Jesus now if you're here and you're in Christ. And yet, He's not here. We don't have Him. So we are people who are satisfied and yet starving. We're people content, and yet we're craving. We're people that are full, and yet we are hungry. That's what we're intended to be by God. Here's another seemingly uh, paradoxical reality about us. Okay, This time, this time right now. 
God is with us always, and yet we are commanded to seek His presence. Surely I'll be with you always. Psalm 105 verse 4. Seek His presence continually. What do you mean seek His presence continually? He's with me always. I don't seek His presence. He's with me. You see the paradoxical reality here? He's with me always and yet seek His presence continually. Now this can be explained by what many people have called the special presence of God. Or many people, and I've called it this today already, the manifest presence of God. So let's dig just a little bit deeper on this, okay? Uh, uh, Isn't God with us always? Yes and no. Yes, He's with us always in the sense of the omnipresence of God where He is always everywhere in His fullness at all times. Nobody can hide from Him. So yes. And also, yes, He's with us always in the fact of His his promise of His presence for His people. Okay? He promises to be with His people, right? Hebrews 13.5 I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in that sense, even more than His omnipresence, He is with us. But in another sense, no, God is not with us. His presence is not with us in another sense, or at least can be. You know that there's times in your life where you have felt like you experienced more of the presence of God than other times. You know that. If you're hearing in Christ, if you're in Christ, you realize that. Now, some people say, see, God said he's with us always. Therefore, stop all this nonsense about telling us to seek the presence of God. But to do that, you must ignore the biblical reality of the manifest presence of God. There is a sense in which God is not with us. God's not with us. And we must earnestly seek his presence. I want you to get that manifest presence of God. Now, let me give you just a few knock off a few biblical evidences for that. Okay, Exodus 33, verse 15. Moses says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here. And then Joshua said, he's always with you, Moses, don't worry. Just kidding, he didn't say that. Why? Because he's not talking about the omnipresence of God. He says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring, don't bring us up from here. I want your presence, God. I want you to be here with us, to dwell with us. Let me give you another one. James 4.8. It says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. God's not limited to a location. So what do you mean He draws near? He doesn't change location. What's going on here? He says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. There's a sense and yes, He is always with you. You are always with Him. But there's another sense in which you need God to draw near to you. And so do I. John 14, 21, Jesus said, He who loves me and keeps my commandments, He'll be loved by my Father and I will manifest myself to Him. He says, I will manifest myself to Him. We think about that. Not just, yes, He's with you always, even to the ends of the age, and you ought to glory in God for that. But that just said, and He'll manifest Himself to you. Revelation 3.20 says something very similar. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens the door, I will come in to Him and dine with Him, and He with me. The presence of God is what we're talking about. Think about the cry all over the Psalms. I won't read them, but all over the Psalms, you hear cries like this. Psalm 13.1, Oh God, how long will you hide your face from me? And nobody turned to him and said, hey man, God's with you, bro. He didn't do that. How long, God, will you hide your presence from me? Answer me speedily, O God. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face, your presence from me, lest I be like a dead man. God, I need your presence here. Is there a place in your theology for that kind of cry before God? You cry out to God like that. 
We are commanded, Psalm 105, seek His presence continually. So I want us to be a people of the presence of God. Okay? Just like you had the temple, you had the tabernacle. Ephesians 2, verse 19 to the end of the chapter, it says that we are His temple. We are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's who the church is. So may we be a people of the presence of God. A people that seek not to just know facts about God, but we want to know Him. We want His presence in our life. We want to dwell with Him. You think about that. The door's been kicked wide open. For you to experience the special, the manifest presence of God. Kicked wide open by Jesus Christ when He came and died for your sins. Imagine ignoring that. No thanks Lord, I'll take historical facts. I know none of you want that. Now quickly, let me clarify just a few things. I want to just give a little bit more clarity. And I'm, just, I'm not even going to look at my notes because i got to go fast. I've got too much to say. Quick, um, let me try to give some quick clarity on what I mean when I say seeking the manifest presence of God. Okay? Two aspects. Two aspects. One aspect is this. Okay? Aspect is this. Is that God manifests His presence as He chooses, how He chooses, and whenever and to whatever degree He wants to. We can put ourselves under the faucet, the manifest presence of God, but we can't turn the faucet on Him. He does it as He pleases. You understand that? And what we see in the Scriptures, we see different ways, different degrees of that. We see this, this picture of, of 2 Corinthians 3.18, of us looking into the Scriptures and beholding the glory of God because God's revealing Himself through His Word. We see God doing that. What that means is we seek Him in His Word and in prayer, not just to check off our Bible reading time, but God, I want to know You. I want to be near to you. Draw near to me this morning as I open your word and hit my face before you in the secret place. God, I want to know you. God reveals himself like that. Or God reveals himself in a cloud that comes down on the temple and they can't even minister in that place because the glory of God has filled it. Or he reveals himself like he did towards John so powerfully that John just hits his face as if dead. He's trembling on the floor before God. And God just reveals Himself, His special presence in those moments. So you got that aspect of, of God reveals Himself as He chooses to whatever degree He wants. And then you've got this aspect of us, of how do we, how do we experience it? How do we feel in response to it? And if there's no experience, there's no feel of it, then it's not the manifest presence of God. It wouldn't be manifest. It wouldn't be perceived. So what is the experience and what do we see in the Scriptures? We see things like this. Fear and trembling before this God. You imagine that. Not just thinking the right things about His holiness, but trembling before God's holiness. Fear and trembling and conviction and humility that stands gladly small before this massive God. Acts 19 verse 17 says, Fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. God came. But what about joy unspeakable? Full of glory. What about rejoicing before this God when He manifests His presence and you just find yourself full of joy over who He is and what He's done? What about satisfaction in Christ? Not anxiety, not the stuff of the world, but satisfaction in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Times of refreshment at the presence of the Lord. Acts 3.19 Refreshment. 
What about heartfelt and passionate worship before God? That's exactly what happened when the Spirit of God came down on that temple in 2 Chronicles 7. It says they immediately shot back with praise and worship with passion to their God. This is the response. What about falling down before Him and trembling? What about holiness and Christ's likeness? I like this one because Satan can't imitate it. Real holiness. Not the fake holiness of asceticism or whatever else you can put out. But I mean real holiness and Christ's likeness is the response when God manifests His presence in your life. Or what about power and effectiveness in ministry? That you're trying to preach the gospel, you're trying to see souls saved, and all of a sudden God in His power saves souls. All of a sudden, God in His power builds up the body of Christ. He uses you. What about longing for the manifest presence of God? And that way, we are, we are called to seek this. We're called to seek God for this. That He does it anytime He wants, in any way He wants, to whatever degree He wants. And we experience in different ways, but we're called to seek the manifest presence of God. Not just, not just religion that has no fear and trembling and no humility. And no joy and rejoicing. And no passionate worship. And no holiness. And no power and effectiveness in ministry. Not that kind of religion. But the kind of religion that is evident. God's spirit. God's presence is with these people. Okay. Now. You want to talk about fasting? Just a second. The church. Now here's, here's where it connects. The church of Jesus Christ expresses these longings for the presence of God and this pursuit of the presence of God through fasting. There are different ways to, to express your desperate desires for God, but a very important one is fasting. There's different things you must do to, to put yourself under the faucet of God's presence, but one of them, a very important one, is Fasting, because what fasting does is it expresses the bridegroom is gone and I desperately desire his presence in my life. Let me prove that to you. Go to Matthew 9. Matthew 9. Alright, I want you to hear this, okay? I've talked a lot today. And I want you to hear this, okay? So wake yourself up. Here we go. We're talking about fasting. Matthew 9, verse 14 through 17, the most foundational verse in the Bible about fasting. Listen. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away, and the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine in old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So let me just give the plain sense here. You've got three groups represented. Pharisees, okay, they're fasting. We know why they fast, to be seen by men. It's wicked. And that's what they do. We know that from Matthew 23 and other places, Luke 18. We've got John's disciples. They're fasting. We don't know exactly the reason. Maybe a little bit like the Pharisees since they kind of partner up with them. Maybe a little bit like Old Testament fasting. Even good Old Testament fasting. I'm going to show you in a minute there's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament fasting. And maybe John's disciples do that. I mean, honestly, they shouldn't still be John's disciples, should they? John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And some of his disciples went to Jesus. Don't stay with John. Why are they still with John? Maybe they're still fasting like this 
Old Testament, even the good Old Testament ways. But we know they're fasting. And then you got Jesus and His disciples. And Jesus' disciples, it says, are not fasting. And they noticed it. These men are not fasting. So the question is posed. Why do we fast and why, how, how, why don't y'all fast? Why do we fast often but your disciples don't fast? Jesus, why? That's the question that's posed. And Jesus gives three word pictures to answer. First word picture is about a wedding. It's a bridegroom. And the friends of the bridegroom are the wedding guests. And Jesus is the bridegroom and the wedding guests are His disciples. And He says, it's wedding time. It's not funeral, funeral fast time. It's wedding feast time. Think about it. The Son of God is present. The One who has been promised since before time began that He would come into this earth and die for sinners. God manifested in the flesh fully is on the earth. Why would they fast? What if Jesus would have turned and posed the question to them? Why are you fasting? You're asking why we're not fasting. Why are you fasting? What would they have said? They wouldn't have said because the Messiah is gone. He's right there. They wouldn't have said because the bridegroom's left. Now they wouldn't have said that because he's right there. Jesus is showing them that they are out of step with the picture of New Testament fasting. A change has been wrought. It's not the same. The next two word pictures are going to show you that. You got the word picture of the wedding feast, and you also got the word picture of, of new and old can't mix. The new, the new patch on the old garment. The new wine and the old wine skin. It says they don't mix. They don't mix. He's trying to get you to see that there's an Old Testament version of fasting that Jesus was not the focal point. But now Jesus is the focal point of your fasting. How do you know? Because you don't fast when he's here. You do fast when he ain't. When God ain't here, you fast. When Christ and bridegroom is gone, you fast. But when he's here, you don't fast. We won't be fasting in Revelation 21 and 22. I guarantee it. It's not a time to mourn. You understand what's going on here? And so this passage teaches, teaches us that Christians should fast. Hear me out. I asked you earlier, have you grown in this? Listen to me. This passage teaches Christians should fast. He says, when the bridegroom leaves, that's Jesus. He's here. But after he leaves, ascends on high, they will fast. They will fast, he says. Same thing in Matthew 6, verse 16 through 18. He says, you, when you fast, don't be like those hypocrites. He just assumes when you fast, you're going to fast. We have the example of Jesus in Matthew 4. He fasted 40 days. We have the example of the early church in Acts 13. 1 and 2, where they fast and they worship before God. This is something that Christians should do. What else does this passage teach us? It teaches that it's, that it's different, like I said a moment ago, right? It's not, it's not the same as that Old Testament fasting, but this is a new thing with Jesus as the focal point. Okay? Now, 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 let's think about this for a minute. Okay? Jesus is the focal point. This passage also teaches us, think about it, that, the old, that this fasting that he's talking about is a form of mourning. Mourning. Sadness. Mourning. Okay? It, it, but it's not the mourning of the Old Testament. It's a New Testament. It's a new kind of mourning. Okay? What do I mean? Well, look at, look at verse 15. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, that's an interesting way to say it because they said, why don't y'all fast? And he said, why should they mourn? And they keep reading. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. So Jesus interchanges them. Mourning and fasting. Puts them next to each other. What does this mean? Okay. Now, the Old Testament was, it had a sense of mourning. Listen to these verses. 2 Samuel 1.12. 
They mourned and wept and fasted. 1 Kings 21, 27. He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. Joel 2, 12. Turn to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Esther 4, 3. There was great mourning among the Jews the fasting with fasting, weeping and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Psalm 35, 13. I humbled myself with fasting as one who mourns for his mother. You see this picture of mourning in the Old Testament? So that's still carried on in the New Testament fasting, but it's a new kind of mourning. So, so how is this, this Old Testament mourning, how is this New Testament mourning different from the Old Testament mourning? Jesus is the focal point. Why will His people fast? Because the bridegroom's gone. Why would you mourn over that? Oh, because I don't want the bridegroom to be gone. I don't want it to be gone. It's like, it's like a, a wife when her, her husband is gone. She ate fine whenever, you know, Lydia ate fine when I was home. But I went to India, she couldn't eat, she couldn't sleep. <laughs> I guess she's in here. You get what I'm saying? It's a morning. It's, oh, I wish the bridegroom was here. Oh, I, wish Christ, I want to be with Christ. I want the Prince of Christ. I'm in this weird place to where I have Jesus, but I don't have Jesus. I have I have Jesus and yet alone for more of Him. I want to be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to know Him. I want to draw near to Him. I want to experience His manifest presence in my life. You get it? This is the New Testament morning. John Piper said it like this. In this age, there is an ache inside every Christian that Jesus is not here. As fully and intimately and powerfully and gloriously as we want Him to be. We hunger for so much more. And that is why we fast. Another quote from him. Fasting is the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. I need you. I want you. I long for you. I hunger for you. And oh, for the day when you would return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Fasting is the exclamation point at the end of that cry of the heart. Fasting is saying with your body, with the hunger of your body, I hunger for you more. Food is good and I eat it to your glory. But I long for you, the giver of food, more than the gift. I long for you. This passage in Matthew 9 teaches us that at the deepest level, fasting is an expression of desperation for Jesus. Desperation for Jesus. Fasting is a mourning that he's absent or said positively. It's a longing for his presence. Fasting is a means in which to pursue the manifest presence of God and to stir up your longings for him. At the deepest level, fasting is an expression of I want God. Now, what about other things? Can you fast for other things? Can you fast for guidance? Can you fast for the nations like they did in Acts 13? Can you fast for your own holiness? I'm struggling with this sin. And, 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 and I don't just want to confess it, but I want to walk into fasting to fight against this sin. Can you do that? Fasting for the salvation of souls. God, I don't want anyone to eat and drink. I want to see that person saved. Can you fast for those reasons? And I say yes, as long as you see the connection to the deepest level. You understand that? As in, should you fast for guidance? Yes, because what do you need? If you, how do you get guidance? Jesus, I need you. Come, Lord. I need your presence so I have guidance. Or how is the gospel going to go to the nations and, and reach unreached people groups? 
God, we need you to come. Rend the heavens and come down. We need your presence, oh God, for the sake of your glory among all nations. You see the connection? It always goes back to the deepest level. You're struggling with a certain sin. You keep struggling with this sin. You keep struggling with this sin. Have you fasted and prayed and said, God, if I had you, I would be fully satisfied. I want to be satisfied in you. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, presence of almighty God. And turn my heart away from these sins. You understand that? I want us to be a people that fast. Let me quickly say some things. It's not on the sheet. Reasons why Christians don't fast, okay? Just a few reasons why they don't fast. Maybe reasons why, just, you know, beware. Beware. Maybe examine yourself in this. Reasons Christians don't fast. Have you fallen into any of these? Number one, just the ignorance of it. Which honestly, everybody here that I know, you're not ignorant of it. You know about fast. And if you were ignorant about it, you're not now. Number two, Reasons Christians don't fast. Fear of all the negative warnings in regards to fasting. There's many, many references in the Bible about fasting. And so many are telling you how not to fast. Do not fast to be seen by men. Jesus comes down on that. You don't fast to bribe God. Christ Jesus paid it all. You don't bribe Him with your fasting. You don't fast for righteousness. He you don't get righteousness through fasting. You fast as this expression and this, this fight. God, I want, to, I want your presence and I want to want your presence, God. And so you express it through fasting. So be warned by the warnings in the Bible, but don't be frozen by them. Just because you're warned about the warnings don't mean you don't walk into fasting. I want us to be a people that long for His presence and express it through fasting. Number three, just plain disobedience. Now, we, you know, I've tried over the years to be clear about what the Bible says about fasting. And I know many of you have too. And maybe I haven't been that clear. But, but if I haven't been that clear, that's no excuse. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not ultimate. You stand before God and His Word. So sometimes it's just plain disobedience to these things. And I'll just plead with us as a church not to disobey God as we see it plainly. When the bridegroom is gone, they will fast. Number four, pampered flesh. <laughs> we have a pampered flesh, I'd say maybe especially in this culture. Fasting is not easy. But it's something we have to practice and grow in. Who wants to grow in that? Again, examine yourself. Are you in this? What about just unbelief? You ever fasted and then you got done and you thought, I feel like I just got hungry. That's all I did. I just got hungry. What about the unbelief of that? Listen to Matthew 6. He says, but you, when you fast, he says, do it before your father who's in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will, listen to the promise, will reward you. He promises. Believe Him. Sometimes I feel like our fasting and prayer is like the neighborhood kids come knock on the door before you get there, they run off. Ever happen to you? The owner of the house gets to the door and nobody's there. You left too soon. That's why I feel like fasting and prayer sometimes. Don't do that. Believe Him. Trust Him. Persevere in the midst of fasting and prayer and believe His Word. He will. He says, I will reward you. And then and the number six, this is the scariest one of all. What would be at the deepest place of why we wouldn't be a people that fast and pray? <clears throat> no desperation for God. That's the scariest one of all. We've, we've bitten off so many of the little tiny pleasures of the world. Not even bad things. Just bitten off so many little pleasures that our stomachs are full. We've got no, no hunger for the things of God. No hunger for God Himself. 
we're content to be without Him. I think anybody, I know, most, I know almost all of you, and if you have, if you have, you, you don't have no desperation, no longings for God. If you're in Christ, you have some longings for God. They're there. Even if you look me now, you say, man, I've been cold, but I don't want to be cold. That is an expression in and of itself of a longing for God. And I'm telling you, express it with prayer and fasting. Be one who does that. And ask God to use that to stir up your affections to more longings for God and more longings for God. And more longings for God. Now, let me just kind of end with this encouragement. Uh, I'm going to read this to you. Matthew 27. <clears throat> Fasting. What will you do with this? Three years ago, I taught on it. And I asked you, what have you done from yay to nay? What about three months from now? What about another year? What about another three years? What will you do with this God's truth on fasting? Matthew 27, verse 15. I love this. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. We know from John that He said, It is finished! That's what He said when He spoke. He cried out with a loud voice. He yielded up His Spirit. Verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I wonder what that means. You get access. You get to enter into the presence of God. Kicked wide open by the death of the Savior who laid down His life for you. Do not stand by the door and not enter in. Enter into the presence of God through fasting. Let me, uh, before I pray, let me invite you to one more thing. Okay? As an expression of this, as an outpouring of this, I want to invite you in, in the near future, and I'm going to give you a date, to a fast that we're going to walk into together as a church, okay? To a corporate fast. You see that in the Scripture. You see individuals fasting. Acts 13, you see they ministered to the Lord and fasted. You see corporate fasting. So if you're part of our church, if you're here, you're brother, sister in Christ with us, I want to invite you into this, call you into this, to walk with us to a time of fasting and prayer, okay? And, and you know, there's different things. I, I don't know. There's different things. There's maybe you got somebody here for medical reasons can't do it, stuff like that. That's okay. You know, there's no pressure on that. We're not going to tally this up. You know who's doing it. But I do. I invite you. I ask you to come into this time. Okay, February nineteenth. So that's a Friday morning, February nineteenth, to Sunday, February twenty-first. We'll have a church meeting, and then we can break the fast after the church meeting, February twenty-first. So if you can, if you're able. I ask you to come into a time of fasting and prayer with us. I encourage you to fill those days, Friday morning, February 19th, February 21st, to fill those days with prayer privately and prayer corporately and coming together and crying out to the living God. There's literally nothing, well, that I know of. If, if somebody's birthday or something, I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried to check and make sure there's nothing going on those days. Not for the sake of like just trying to work around everybody's schedule. I did that purposefully, okay? Because I don't, I don't want this, this time we fast together, okay? I don't want it, according to what we just saw in God's Word, I don't want it to just be a time when we fast just for, we can do this, but not just for Moses and in India, not just for things that are out. I want us to fast, and there's nothing else going on. Nobody's on a mission trip during that time. Nobody's anything like that that I know of. And so I want us to fast during that time. And I hear all across this room, all the time, how can I pray for you, brother? How can I pray for you, sister? Man, I feel cold. Man, I feel far from God. Man, I feel cold. Man, I feel far from God. And part of me is thankful for some sort of conviction over that. 
But oh, how I long to see a people where I say, how can I pray for you, man? How can I pray for you? And I don't want anybody to lie. I'm dealing with the same stuff of coldness and things like that. So what I want us to do is be a people that go out and say, God, we don't want to be cold. We want to have your presence, the fullness of your glory. We want you to be with us. So come, God, and dwell with us. So let's fast and pray in a way that we scream that with the hunger of our bodies and with our prayers as we go to, go, go to Him in prayer. And we scream to Him, God, we want more of you. We want your presence, oh God. Okay? So February 19th through 21st. And um, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you, God, for letting us open your word. Lord, help us to be doers of your word. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for access and your presence. Thank you, Lord, that we don't, uh, as we often say, we have to twist your arm. But you've made more, you've made infinitely more moves toward us to expose yourself to us than we have ever made towards you. You are so good, God, to pursue us and pursue us and pursue us. And even in the midst of our weakness and even in our sin, God, to, to pursue us. God, thank you, Lord Jesus. God, make us a people. Help us to draw near to you and see you in very real manifest ways that you would draw near to us, God. Fill us with the joy of your presence. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.